Hi there, and welcome to Manningham Christian Centre's Sermon of the Week. I'm so glad you joined us. My name is Matt Wyatt, and I'm the lead pastor here. My prayer for you is that as you listen, you encounter God and find this message practically helpful. It would mean a lot to us if you were able to rate and subscribe. This not only lets us know how we can serve you better, but also spreads the message to those who need to hear it. Hey, thanks so much again, and I look forward to catching up with you later. Bye. (laughs) A fabulous introduction. I should take you everywhere, Trent. That's fantastic. And it's good to be with you, and I want to explain what I'm doing now and, and this evening, just so that you're aware of what I'm doing. Most of the times that Bill would have asked people to come, it would have been the, the, the more inspirational speaking, looking at God's Word and seeing what God's Word is saying to us. What I want to do today, and what I've been asked to do, is look at our society and say, what is that saying to us? Where are we at as Western countries? Where is Australia at as a nation? What does it mean to speak the Gospel into those people? And what does it mean to speak the gospel into our nation? What are the shifts that are occurring that are going to impact the way we do the gospel? If you're in Narendra, and I've noticed that many of you are from the country areas, you will be slightly less impacted than those people who are living in downtown Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, etc. But that doesn't mean there isn't influence across our nation because that leaks into every part of who we are. So as a, as, as a way of, of, of saying, that's what I wanted to do today. And one of the things we talked about was story and the importance of story. You talked about that last night. And the, the, what, what story does is gives us a narrative which actually creates our culture, a guy called Paul Connaughton, who's passed away now, wrote a book about culture and forming culture. And his whole point was forming culture was not about just historical learning. It's about the stories that we tell, which creates a narrative and that narrative creates a culture. And that culture reinforces itself by the stories that it continues to focus on. So if you're wanting to change a culture, you need to change the story. And one of the things that we need to recognise as we talked this morning and tonight is there are a lot of pressures out there within the, within the community of a nation like Australia, but I'm going to mention America as well, where people are trying to change the story because they want a new narrative, because they want to shift the culture. And one of, there's three ways that people do that. One is to change the story by taking the story away. Now, you probably think, well, that's a bit dramatic. I'm not sure how that would ever happen. But if you look back into Poland in the Second World War, as the Nazis took over Poland, there's a guy called Rod Dreyer who's written a book called Live Not By Lies. Now, this is not the point of the book, but it's an example of part of the book that really stuck with me. He said, when the Nazis took over Poland, and unfortunately for the Polish, it wasn't just the Nazis, because, you know, after the Second World War, they were then embraced as a generous term, into the Soviet Union, then the same thing happened again under the Soviet Union. What Dreyer says that the Nazis wanted to do was not just dominate Poland militarily or politically, they wanted to stop what it meant to be Polish. And think about that. How do you stop what it means to be Polish? You take away their stories and you take away their religion. 
And it was a, a way of sort of expunging stories from the community. And interestingly, in, in, as Rod Dreyer says, one of the things that happened in Poland was that they were never, the Polish were never going to win militarily and the Polish were never going to win politically. They just didn't have the ability. But you know what they could do? Hold on to their stories. And Rod Dreyer said this, and I wrote this in a, somebody asked me to sign their book last night and I wrote it in the book and then I thought they probably went home, opened the book and thought, what is that? I wrote in the book, A Fortress of Memory. Because what the Polish did was in all sorts of ways created fortresses of memory. Faith Runs Deep is a fortress of memory. The Bible in your church is a fortress of memory. Reminding our culture of the influence of the people of Jesus is a fortress of memory. One of the things that we need to do is create even in our situations, in your churches, however big or however small, you're creating a fortress of memory that will live on right through the generations. Even if our country went to the, the dogs, so to speak, a fortress of memory will continue to hold on to your family, to your community, to your churches. Create fortresses of memory. I forget the young lady who spoke last night talked about, she was actually referring to Joshua in, in, uh, in Judges chapter two. And in Judges chapter two, she actually talked about, and she re referenced this, which is where the, the, the people who followed Joshua in Judges chapter two, they, they, a whole generation went to be with the Lord. Uh, and then they said the next generation didn't know their stories. And when they didn't know their stories, they didn't just believe nothing they grasp the stories of the nations around them. First way that you change a nation and to change a culture and to change a narrative is to expunge the stories. The second is to tell a new story, to change the story. Now in America, one of the great um, pressure points in America is, and this has happened certainly since the death of uh, George Floyd in 2020, and, and this has been bubbling away, but sort of found full voice after that happened, was to create the idea that America is systemically racist. It's just not that there are racist people in America, but the new narrative, the new story that they want to tell is America is systemically racist. It's built into the DNA of the nation. I'm going to come back to racism a little bit later. But the intriguing thing is that... Um, in, uh, in a couple of years ago, in, there was a thing called the, the, the 1619 Project. And the 1619 Project was written by Hannah Nicole Jones. She's a New York Times journalist. Now keep, keep in mind what I'm saying here. New York Times, one of the best known uh, newspapers and, and, and supposedly uh, the bedrock of journalism across America and the world, the New York Times, she worked for them and they asked her, to, she wrote an article. And the article was called The 1619 Project. When it was released in the oh, four, uh, 300 years or whatever uh, after, this, after 1619, they actually had a 100 page uh, version or magazine as part of the, the New York Times when they released it. The 1619 Project is, is basically saying this. You will know, I'm sure it's on the top of your mind, that uh, America was started in 1620 when the Mayflower went from England to America, the east coast of America, and here was a group of people looking for what? Religious liberty, re opportunity, liberty of purpose. They were fleeing from, from as it were, a, 
religious oppression in England and in, in Europe, and they're going to America for a fresh start built on liberty and the opportunity to, to, to move forward as a group. So that's, that's the kind of story of how America is settled. The 1619 Project, Hannah and Cole Jones is actually saying, no, well, actually, what happened in 1619 was there was a, Pol a, a Portuguese trading ship moving up the east coast of, of what became America. They'd uh, been down in the south, and when they got to Virginia, they needed some extra money, they were looking for some finances, so they actually sold 30 slaves. Now, slavery, no one's justifying slavery, and slavery is a terrible thing, and the buying and selling of people is a dreadful way to treat people. But and they sold these 30 slaves. And Hannah Nicole Jones is basically saying that is the settling of America, settled by the buying and selling of black slaves. She wrote, this, she wrote the, the article and then later a book and, and made a bunch of points. One is that, that um, the Revolutionary War was to protect, so the, the war in, uh, of, of independence was to protect the US ability to hold slaves. Now you're probably thinking, I don't remember reading that. That's because no one's ever written it that Abraham Lincoln was a racist who wanted to protect slavery, that uh, the whole bunch of accounting system and double accounting, as, it, as it's called, was actually the result of the slave trade and, and the slaves from the, the plantations. Now, th these are kind of bizarre claims that nobody in history has ever written before. Do you know that that paper, which became a book, won a Pulitzer Prize? A Pulitzer Prize. It is now taught, Rod Dreyer actually referred to this, it's now taught at the time of Rod Dreyer's reading, uh, writing his book, Live Not By Lies, taught in four and a half thousand schools across America. Why would that be the case? Because it's what they want to believe. They want that to be true. And they're looking for a new narrative to prove a concept in their mind that America is systemically racist. There's a guy called, um, uh, Douglas Murray, I'm going to quote, I'm going to talk about Douglas Murray again uh, this evening, but let me just re read what he says. He says, within living memory, the story of America had been one, had been one of a great leap into glorious liberty led by some of the most remarkable men of their age or any age. Now, instead, the American story was rooted in crime that can apparently never be alleviated. Change the story. You wipe the story out or you tell a new story. And the third is what we focus in, uh, face in Australia is that you tell a jaundiced story. And the jaundiced story that's told in Australia of Christian influence and faith is not what I talked about last night. It's that we've failed children, we've failed the vulnerable, we've failed the Indigenous people and we're failing as an institution. Now, I think those four things are all actually inaccurate, but that's the story being told. And what's trying to happen is there's this notion of changing the narrative to change the story, to shift the culture. And our task in the middle of all of that is to create fortresses of memory. Not, we don't, our job is not to kind of somehow change the past and change the story so the Christian church looks better or the people who follow Jesus look better. What we're trying to do is to be accurate in what happened and to defend the story and to create a fortress of memory. I wanna talk about, as we come into this, 
The, the notion of change in the narrative actually is a shift in what, is, what we see as important from a religious worldview point of view. And what it is as a church that we're, for want of a better word, fighting against or standing against or what is the opposition to the Christian message? And I wanna take you back 12 years, 13 years. If you remember 2010, What was the big deal in 2010? This is not a test, I'm gonna give you the answer. But you think about this, what's the big deal in 2010? If you went back to 2010 and you were looking at what are the big issues for the church? What's standing against the Gospel? What are we fighting with in 2010? You might remember it was actually the new atheists. Do you remember the new atheists? Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, uh, Christopher Hitchens who's passed away, uh, Daniel Derrett. These guys were called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They were everywhere. Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, sold three million copies. That's a lot of books. If you, were, if you remember back at that stage, if you were still in primary school or high school, just suffer through this, all right? But if you remember back at that stage, there were conferences all over the world. There's a conference in Melbourne, the Atheist Conference, which is kind of bizarre actually, to come all the way around the world to get to a conference about something you don't believe in. They were on air all the time, they were quoted all the time, they were the biggest deal. And in fact, in response from the church, what was the church doing then? We were creating organisations to stand against the new atheists, weren't we? There were all sorts of organisations, the Centre for Public Christianity here in Australia, Thinking Matters in New Zealand, the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics in Oxford, great organisations, fantastic people, and they're standing against the new atheists. Here's a question. When was the last time you heard of the new atheists? Kind of interesting, isn't it? The new atheists are not so new. In fact, they don't actually exist, almost. I'm not saying that atheism doesn't exist. But when you think about that, it's a reminder that what we need to do today in bringing the story of Jesus to Australia is to recognise we're not fighting with a generation ago. We're standing against what are the faiths that we stand against now. The intriguing thing that we see there's a guy, a guy called J.K. Uh, Cheston, Joe actually mentioned to him before, asked if I'd read this particular book. I hadn't, so it made me feel dumb. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, feeling much better now. But uh, J.K. Chesterton actually wrote, uh, has this really famous statement which goes something like this. When people don't believe in God, they don't believe in nothing, they actually believe in anything. And what, we, what we're seeing today is as reflected in that giant of thinking and intellect and, uh, and, and thought, uh, Elon Musk, uh, who wrote a tweet, which is probably now called an X, um, just recently said, there, there seems to be a deep innate human need for religion. As old ones fall, new ones arise. So the question is, what are the new religions? And if you're thinking Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam seems to be growing, The new atheists have gone, the new religions are arising. What are the new religions? I I quoted uh, Roy Williams last night and Roy Williams wrote a book called, as we said last night, Post God Nation, question mark. He wrote that, I I can't remember the date, but he would have written that around uh, 2010. You know what he says the new religions were then? We don't, the church doesn't have to worry about Buddhism and Hinduism, it needs to worry about scientism and materialism. Now, the interesting thing is, I think we've shifted again. 
It's not to say that materialism isn't still a big deal, and it certainly is. Uh, but scientism is actually fading. There are new religions that we need to deal with, and there are new religions we have to respond to. And I want to take some time just today to say, here are what I think are the, th the three new religions that are having most influence on Western nations and the people you're talking to and the, the, the kind of culture in which we're trying to bring the message of Jesus and the gospel. What are the new religions? Now, interestingly, these new religions you will have heard of or thought of as being ideologies, kind of frameworks of thinking, but they're more than ideologies. They're more than just frameworks of thinking. What is religion? Religion is the thing that gives you purpose. It's the thing in which your world revolves around. It's the, it's the kind of concept framework that actually creates purpose, meaning, focus in your world. So what are these today? There are three in my mind. And here's the first one. LGBTIQ plus diversity, inclusion and intolerance. That functions as a new religion within our community. It functions, its key idea is that all identities are self-reference. That truth about ourselves and our sexual and gender identities can be determined by our own choices. That a truly great society is one that accepts every person's sexual and gender identity and find equality for all of those people. The original sin, if we can use these terms from a religious point of view, the original sin is to stand in the way of a gender or sexual identification and increasingly the original sin is a failure not just to live with it, but a failure to enthusiastically in, endorse those views. And redemption, redemption is, is to not allow other people's right or identity. We must celebrate and champion that. That's where we find redemption is never standing against it and championing it. Now, the major shift here, because you've heard about this for years, this is not like it's new, but there's a major shift that, that accepting or just cohabitating is not enough. McCrindle did some research, Mark McCrindle, we've, Olive Tree Media have worked with Mark McCrindle quite a bit. You would have read a, a number of Mark McCrindle's pieces of research. And, and I've, we've, because we've worked with McCrindle a number of times, most of the research I've looked at, it's a bit like, yeah, I've got, we're across that. There's a new piece of research that I saw for the first time in, in November last year that gets at this point. And McCrindle was, was talking about the fact that accepting someone's identity, especially in this area, is not enough. In, 20, in 2020, when they were asked, I accept an individual and advocate for their practice or worldview, 2% said that. So not just accepting and not just living with, but advocating for that worldview, being a champion for that worldview. In 2020, 2% agreed. By 2022, that had jumped to 16%. 16% of people said, it's not just that I want to accept and live with, but my job is to champion that worldview. Uh, McCrindle's research said this, this highlights that Australians are shifting in their view of acceptance, that to accept someone is not just to accept the individual, but increasingly to participate or advocate for their worldview and practices. The expectation is that you will not just live and let live, that you will passionately endorse. Now this came to a head in Scotland. 
there's probably a whole bunch of these pieces I'm going to tell you, you might not have come across. But in Scotland uh, last year, Nicola Sturgeon resigned. That was almost as exciting for the Scottish as Daniel Andrews resigning. <laughs> they, they sat in a fairly similar view, but Scotland, it was worse. Let me give you a little bit of background. Scotland was pushing through the parliament a, a bill that meant that you could um, choose your gender and you didn't need anything else. No psychologist, no referral to a doctor, no length of time, no surgical changes, nothing. You could just turn up and say, today, now, I'm a woman. Now, there's a lot of pushback and there's a lot of discussion in the parliament at the time in Scotland. And one of the pieces of pushback was this. Well, what if some sex offender who's raped three women decides that he's suddenly a woman? Are you gonna put them into a prison? They, they pushed through, they tried to push through um, a, a change to the bill to, to kind of allow that that wouldn't happen. Two things were said. One, that's ridiculous, it will never happen. And two, it was voted down. Can you believe this? It was voted down in the Scottish Parliament, that amendment. The, the, the bill gets passed. Within six weeks, a man that had raped two women identified as a woman and was about to go to a woman's jail. Now, you can imagine the response was huge. Now, what happened was that Nicola Sturgeon resigned in the middle of all of that, and, um, and then they, they moved forward, and there, there was a, a, a they, they had this, this long, tedious, and difficult process for the SNP, the Scottish National Party, about who would replace Nicola Sturgeon. This is all part of this story. The interesting thing is that there were two candidates. One was a Muslim man who agreed with everything that Nicola Sturgeon said, and all the imams in Scotland said, don't vote for him. <laughs> because there was another woman, her name was Kate Forbes. Kate Forbes was in her early 20, 30s. And the interesting thing about Kate Forbes is that she was a Presbyterian and a conservative Presbyterian. In fact, she was asked early on in a candidacy for the Scottish National Party, if she was in parliament voting for same-sex marriage, would she have voted for it? And she said, no. The bizarre thing was that in polls across Scotland, she was doing better than the other guy. Now, the other guy ended up just winning from, a, from, from the party's point of view. But it was so interesting in Scotland, the pushback around what was happening with this ideology, this new religion. Now, I'm telling you all of that because I want to read you a quote from a lady called Kathleen Stock. Kathleen Stock is not a Christian. She's a gay woman, uh, a very active gay woman in the fact that she's an activist. And she wrote an article uh, in, in a the thing called The Unheard, and she wrote this. Now keep in mind, for those of you who are not across this, Presbyterians are a Calvinist theology. Got that? That's important for this. Presbyterians are seen as Calvinists. Here's what Kathleen Stock wrote. As I say, we have here a clash of two religions. One of them is full of sanctimonious, swivel-eyed, moral scowls, rooting out heresy and trying to indoctrinate everyone into their fantastic view of thinking. The other is a branch of Calvinism. <laughs> now think about what Kathleen Stock, not a Christian, a gay woman, a lesbian woman, what is she saying? 
This ideology is held with religious passion. That's what she's saying. And the framework sits in that space. Kerry McBride was in Scotland. This guy went to have a temporary job with the transport department in Scotland. Uh, He's enrolled because to get a job with the transport department, you had to be enrolled in a training session run by the internal LGBIT plus network. He said this, one event, civil servants were encouraged to read trans language primer which claims biological sex is a falsehood, which has been invented by the medical profession to reinforce white supremacy and gender oppression. The primer also states that women are critical of gender stereotypes and part of the trans hate group, any woman that does that, uh, have an unhealthy fascination with trans kids. This is a government department training document. What have we got here? Something held with religious passion something held with religious focus. It's beyond just an idea. There's a religious passion behind what's being said. The second thing we wanted to go on to, now my timer has just finished. What time am I supposed to finish, Bill? Um, We just have a general vote. (laughs) Because there was a a thing on the back there telling me what I had, now it's gone blank, which is a way of saying, talk as long as you like, is that right? Hey! I reckon that's about the only time that's ever happened in any conference anywhere ever. <laughs> so the second area, the second framework is, a, is racism. That a key belief is that Western nations are built on and rife with racism and white supremacy. The original sin, and this is important, the original sin in this area is not to be a racist, but the failure to admit your racism. Keep that in mind. The original sin is not racist action, but because all Western nations, Australia and America included, if you are white, you are inherently racist. So the, so the redemption is to publicly repent of your racism and have public demonstrations of your shame, guilt and sorrow. Now you would have seen that in all sorts of places. There's, there's shots in America of a, a group of uh, African-Americans with white people all kneeling before them. Now, recognising that racism has had a terrible influence on Western nations is a good thing to do. I think Kevin Rudd's, whatever you think, I think Kevin Rudd's apology was a good thing to do for the stolen generation. That's not to say that responding to, being honest about, or talking about literal, actual racist actions like slavery and not trying to pretend that they're somehow a good thing, that's good. But, but the inference that absolutely everyone, because of the, the whiteness of your skin, it, that you are inherently racist is another thing altogether. And, and as this has all come together, John McWhorter, who is at Columbia University, wrote this. This is a profoundly religious movement in everything but terminology. It has original sin, white privilege. It has judgment day, coming to terms with race. It has excommunication of the heretic, social media shamings and more. All this ends up with Richard Dawkins. Now, one of the things I'm gonna talk about tonight is how how over this last 10 to 15 years, the sides have changed. 
Where people stand have changed. What they stand against has changed. And if you think that Richard Dawkins is in the opposition, that may not be the case in some of these areas. And he wrote this, there's an analogue of religional sin that white people are expected to feel guilt for what their ancestors or maybe just people of the same skin colour did to other people of different skin colour. It's as though we're supposed to inherit the guilt of people of the past just because we have the same skin colour as they did. And that is, I think, racism. It's actually racism to confer guilt upon people because of the colour of their skin. But it's held with religious ideology. It's held with religious passion. It has original sin and redemption. It is influencing our community in every part of what we do. Uh, I want to show you a video. This goes for four minutes. It was, been, it was released on the 13th of September uh, this year. It's, it's basically just a couple of weeks old. We've done a cut in it to make it a little bit shorter. And this is to introduce the third area of religious passion within our community. Welcome to Apple. Welcome to Apple. Hi, I'm she Tim. How is the weather coming in? Hi, I'm Tim. I'm going to do the offices already carbon neutral thing, right? Yeah, all yours. We didn't keep you waiting. Mother Nature. Mother Nature, welcome to Apple. How was how the weather getting in? The weather was however I wanted it to be. Let's cut to the chase. In 2020, you promised to bring Apple's entire carbon footprint to zero by 2030. Henry David Thoreau over here said we have a profound opportunity to build a more sustainable future for the planet we share. I think our 10 o'clock said the same thing. They all do. All right. This is my third corporate responsibility gig today, so who wants to disappoint me first? Well, we've got some updates we're excited to share with you. Materials? Status? Is there a materials person here? Yes. We are in the process of eliminating all plastic from our packaging by the end Let of me guess. 50 years from now when someone else is left holding the bag? By the end of next year, actually. When we're also currently using 100% recycled aluminum in the enclosures of all our MacBooks, Apple TVs, Apple Watch. What about iPod Shuffle? The, well, I don't, I don't uh, it's a joke. Don't you people make Ted Lasso? Oh, that's a different group. Um, we're also phasing out leather in our iPhone cases. What about Brando over there? They phasing you out too? Oh. What's next? As you can see, we've innovated and retooled almost every part of our process to reduce our impact on the planet. But there's still a lot more work to do. And there's something else we wanted to share with you. You're not trying to bribe Mother Nature with Apple swag. It's Apple's very first carbon neutral product. Hmm. I want to see you do more of this. You will. When? 
By 2030, all Apple devices will have a net zero climate impact. All of them? All of them. They better. They will. See you next year. Don't disappoint your mother. And, and what they're doing environmentally is absolutely astounding. And it's a fantastic, and I, I cut out a couple of minutes in the middle of it as they espouse their wonderful uh, work that they're doing. Great work for the environment. But there's, did you get the feel that there's something else going on there? The, the sense that the environment is more than just where we live. There's this, 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 this notion, there's, as a, a guy called Robert Bow, uh, Barron, who's from Rochester, says, what strikes me immediately is the combination of awe and fear in the faces of those around the table, a re reaction that can only be characterised as religious. And holding, holding on to the environment with kind of religious passion, I think becomes part of one of the religions that we're dealing with in the West today. The belief that the environment is the seedbed of the soul and that the, of, of human race. We owe the existence, we owe our existence to the environment and we're no more significant than any other part of the environment or any of the other creatures. We've got a, the, the move from global warming. You've, you've noticed this language over the last 10 years, probably shorter than that. Global warming to climate change to a climate ex emergency to Extinction Rebellion. And, and this push is having an enormous influence on how we think about ourselves. And in fact, I'm gonna talk about this tonight, is also striking fear into a whole generation of young people. I mean, interestingly, just a few months ago, Greta Thunberg had to, uh, had to delete a tweet. She tweeted in 2018 that the world would end in five years. Uh, in May, that didn't seem to be the case, so she needed to delete the tweet. But what we're saying is that there's extremism around this whole way of thinking. The original sin is your personal carbon footprint, what we drive, what we eat, what we drink, and how we live. Redemption is to repent of your creature comforts and to reduce our carbon footprint. Now, is that a good thing? Of course it is. Although I must say, as an aside, People who fly around the world in private jets lecturing me about what car I drive <laughs> is a little annoying. Now, what's the general argument? So I've just shortened the last two because I don't think they're as impactful as the first. What is the general argument in these? That they are religious by, in style, affiliation and values. They are not just an ideology. They're a religious framework. Justin Briley said this, the problem is that the acolytes who congregate around these new totems, and he has a couple more, but LGBTI rights, environmentalism, feminism, anti-racism and patriotism are often inherent with the worst, are often inherent, inherit the worst aspects of religious fundamentalism in their zeal for justice. Uh, Nick Cave, singer, you know the name? Australian uh, rock singer, I guess you'd call him. I think 
The divisive nature of the cultural arguments these days is religious in temperament and the worst of religion is puritanical, superior and self-righteous. That's what we're dealing with. And the intriguing thing is that this new religion has been talked about or referred to as wokeism. Now, let me just say one thing about wokeism. There'll be people who will tell you that being woke is being awake and that that's a pretty good thing. That's like saying being gay is happy. Now, when you say someone's gay, they don't mean they're just having a good day. It talks about what... Wokeism is not what it used to be stood for. Wokeism stands for all of these ideologies. And the intriguing thing is that you've got the, 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 the atheist, what was then the new atheist, and that framework of people who are now rethinking what they stand against. At one stage, they stood against Christianity and religion because they believed that was the place that all a negative, was all a negative influence on Western nations and we need to rid the world of Christian faith and belief and if we did that, we would create a better nation and create a better future. The intriguing thing is that they're now rethinking that view. It's a guy called David Silverman. And David Silverman... Uh, um, it used to be uh, the, the, the head of, of the, uh, the atheist movement of America or the, 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 uh, the president of American atheists. That's what it was. And he wrote, he wrote a, a, a longish social media post and I want to take a bit of it. And he's writing about what he sees in America right now. Now, I don't agree with the first statement, but let me just read what he wrote. He said, the atheist movement won and Christianity is dying, yay. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's what his view is. Where's the atheist, the new atheist, the atheistic movement, the American Atheist Association? We've won this argument. And how good is that? But he said this, but the country is reacting by embracing a new mythology, which is clearly destroying our country. Let me sit, let that sink in. It's clearly destroying our country. The masses yearn to be told what to think, not the freedom to learn and to read and to do scepticism. Wokies don't read the other side ever. Scepticism is left out, is, is, is itself, is out of vogue. So he says, what did we win? The booby prize of a worse religion run by the government. A new state church without a church, completely legal, constitutionally, and utterly destructive. Now, let me just stay on that for a moment. What Silverman is saying is that when he was standing against Christianity, he was standing against a religious church institution that stands within the community by itself, and we're standing against that. What he's saying here is wokeism, at its worst, is actually held by the government and created by the government and protected by the government. Hence the training that that guy in Scotland had to do when he was trying to get a job as a, as a part-time job with the transport department. He's been pushed through this. And you know, and I know, this is being pushed through our institutions, through our schools, through the media, all of these spaces. That's the places that we're being impacted by these three religions. And what does he say next? I'm afraid I've lost faith in the power of atheism to release the masses from the clutches of lies. They just run to new lies. 
Now, I don't agree that what we believe is a lie, that he does. But what, what's the point he's making? They are looking for religion. People are innately religious. Christian faith was religious, but these ideologies are religious. And what, we will, what I think our nations will find is it will be as hollow as atheism. Why has atheism failed? Now, you're probably thinking, well, it's obvious why atheism has failed, because it's not true. <laughs> and you'd be right. One of the reasons that atheism has failed, and Justin Briley, who's written a book called The Surprising Rebirth of Christianity, and uh, we chatted to Justin earlier this year, and I, and I want to um, mention that this, uh, this evening when I speak. But one of the things that Justin Briley in his book, The Surprising Rebirth of Religion, says that the, the fact that atheism had such an impact on the next generation seems like a great idea, it, except it left a moral void. It's hard to go through life not believing anything. There's no real point. Uh, one of the things that, that they're finding in America, which we know of, which is just awful, that deaths of despair are growing. In fact, they've continued to grow. In the last 20 years, they've grown. In other words, you're so despairing that there's nothing in life that, that to hold on to. Atheism might be a nice framework to allow you to do whatever you want, whenever you want, because there's no God looking over your shoulder, but it leaves you in a moral and values void. In the middle of that, others are gonna take their place. And they might be turning to Buddhism, they might be turning to other faiths. Islam has actually developed its whole in Western countries, its whole evangelistic, as it were, edge. But in the, in the end, you've got whole generations who are desperate for some meaning, desperate for some purpose, desperate for a reason to hang on to. Why do you think when Jordan Peterson turns up to places like Australia and England and America, New Zealand, literally thousands of young men turn up and it's driving all of their parents absolutely nuts but why do they come? Because they have no purpose. Because they have no meaning. Because there seems no reason to hang on. And in the middle of that, these ideologies, acting as religion, are trying to give people purpose. You will see this all the time as you watch the news. You'll see people parade out to block, block uh, traffic. You'll see people parade out in r ridiculous outfits. You'll, you'll see these people giving passion and religious fervour to, to spread these ideologies, these religions into the community. And our task is to stand against them in the sense that we're seeking to spread Jesus. Our task is not to kind of pretend that all these are evil and awful people. Most of them are, are, are great people trying to do a good job. But what they're seeking to do is to bring a false hope and a false faith and a false future which will end up being devoid of meaning. This evening as I, as I speak to you, I wanna to come to you tonight and talk about what are the seven other major shifts happening across the globe. I wanna help us to understand what is the world that we're living in. And as you think about what we've chatted about this, this afternoon, it's only been since 2010. Now some of you, that's half your lifetime, so that feels like a long time. For some of us, it's a blink of an eye. It's not long ago. And the world keeps changing. And what we need to do as people that follow Jesus and speak, seek to speak into the world in which we live is to actually bring the message that responds to today, not yesterday. 
respond to the issues of now, not the issues that were. And the intriguing thing is, if we start responding to the new atheists because we think that's the problem, that was yesterday's issue. What's today's? And how do we respond to them? And I trust that as we work, this, we work together on this, as we speak together, as we seek God together, that He'll give us the wisdom that we need to respond to the culture that we find ourselves in. Bless you. Thanks. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Anna. I trust that during the service, God was moving in your heart and His presence was where you are. Just before we say goodbye today, I'd love to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. If today's message spoke to you, or you've been considering believing in Jesus as your Saviour, then I would love to invite you to do that now. Would you repeat this short prayer after me? Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose again to give me life. I ask you to forgive my sins and be my Lord and my Saviour. I open my heart to you today. Amen. If you said yes to Jesus today, we would love to hear from you. We would love to celebrate with you, pray with you and help you start your Jesus journey. Visit our website, manninghamcc.org and go to the I Said Yes page. Fill out your details and one of our leaders will get in touch with you. We would love to hear your story. Hey, thanks for joining in today and being part of our service. If you enjoyed today's service, would you click the share button and subscribe to MCC so you can stay connected? We all need some good news and we would love to hear how God has spoken to you today. Visit manninghamcc.org and fill out a good news story form today. If you would love to know more how to grow in your relationship with God, then Next Steps provides the path for you. Visit manninghamcc.org to find out more. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.